comfortable and at ease and let yourself listen for this time, half an hour or a bit longer. And then we'll have a bit more chanting from the Gandan monks and then they'll answer some questions for you um, about their lives as monks and, and so forth. I'm quite aware um, in speaking tonight that it's Memorial Day. And of course, a lot of these holidays in some way become like, oh, a day off from work. We have three-day weekend. Let's go, you know, go to the beach or go do something pleasant um, with our families or whatever, which is all really good. It's great, actually, to stop the work thing. You know what I mean? Um, but it's also Memorial Day in a different kind of meaning that you're also aware of. Um, and Memorial Day became a, an official national holiday only in 1971. Um, but it began, actually, it was called Decoration Day. And Decoration Day started just at the end of the Civil War. And in the North, it was started by General John Logan in 1866. Um, and people would bring flowers to the graves of those who died, places like Gettysburg and Antietam and so forth. And in the South, it actually started a couple of years earlier in Charleston. A year after the war ended, there had been a prisoner of war camp in Charleston where they kept the stockade of of many um, Union soldiers, soldiers from the Union Army, POWs, and hundreds of them had died. And so there was a gathering of 10,000 freedmen and women, people who'd been slaves, including 3,000 freed children. How's that for a phrase? Freed children who came and laid flowers on the graves of the Union soldiers who'd been there. And then gradually it spread. 600,000 people died in the American Civil War, soldiers. And the population of the entire country was less than the population of the state of California now, if you can imagine that. So really kind of unthinkable. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth upon this continent, I should have memorized it in school, a new nation, said Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men and women, thank you, are created equal. We gather not to mourn but to honor, goes on, and pledge that they will, have not, they will not have died in vain and that a nation so conceived in liberty shall not perish from this earth. So we've all, in some ways, read and reflected on how to study those words in some fashion or other. And of course, they're carved in the Lincoln Memorial when you go, which is such a moving place. Um, and yet, at the same time, we continue to have wars. Plato said, only the dead know the end of war. Unfortunately, he's right 2,000 years later. But what is both critical and important, especially as we gather here to meditate, um, is that the Buddha's teaching and practice is a radical alternative to this. So my teacher Ajahn Chah put it this way. He said, start with yourself. He said, we human beings are constantly in combat, at war to escape the fact of being so limited limited by our fears and so many circumstances we cannot control. But instead of escaping, we continue to create suffering, waging war with others, waging war with what is wrong, waging war with what is too small or too big, waging war with what is too short or too long, right or wrong, courageously carrying on the battle. Why not stop the war? Why not step off the battlefield? Or the teachings from the Anguttara Nikaya of the Buddha, where he says, Here, my friends, a noble disciple of the Buddha gives up the destruction of life and abstains from it 
by abstaining from harming and destroying life, the noble disciple gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, aggression, and oppression. By giving to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression, they themselves will enjoy immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. This is the first and great gift of non-harming. So it's an alternative to stop the war, starting with ourselves. And perhaps the best way to honor the very genuine sacrifice, enormous sacrifice, and courage, and the visible sacrifice in those long rows of white stones. If you go to the veterans' cemeteries, like the one on the way to the airport, you know, rows and rows and rows of names of mostly people who are 19 and 20 and 22 years old, who are your friends and brothers and sisters. Perhaps the best way to honor those long rows of stones and to acknowledge that we live actually with whatever freedom and whatever understanding we have, we stand in debt to all those who went before us, not just them, but to our ancestors, survivors, would be to find another way to resolve our human conflicts. I did not find the world desolate when I entered it. My ancestors planted for me before I arrived. And so now I plant seeds for those who come after. What are the seeds that we wish to plant? There's a way in which our country is pretty much unconscious about war. Maybe the whole globe is. But it's sort of taken for granted, you know. You have convenience stores, and you have a telephone, and you have war. Seriously, people don't really think about it. It's kind of natural, right, that you do. Um, and, and in many cases, it's almost like inconceivable. What would we do? You know, whole huge industries would disappear. The cartoon I saw in the New Yorker showed two generals striding down the hallway of the Pentagon with all their medals and so forth, one talking to the other saying, it really shook me. I dreamed the meek inherited the earth. Right? <laughs> but, poem from Thomas McGrath, part of an essay. The war continues to speak its nightmares of victors and vanquished alike. And the Buddha says, in war there are no victors. Everybody suffers. Now it speaks from the homeless haunts of veterans returned from the war, many never finding a home. And I was at the Glide Memorial Church on Sunday, and the whole teaching was there, was focused on homeless veterans. It was, you know, including homeless veterans who spoke to the group. So many. Each homeless veteran becoming the sole witness of their own homecoming, wandering, hearing, in no metaphorical way, the chorus of orphans, those left alone. When the awful chorus that attends the end of war is denied by the pretend parades of victory, when the chorus of lament is silenced in favor of forgetting, War is calling to the next generation. The poets bring the other voice of war, the chorus of lament, rage, warning, cries, prayers. These are the landmarks left behind, the shrapnel, the ruins, the unexploded bombs, and the unfinished sentences of war. Ultimately, poets speak the truth. Even when no one listens, the poets speak some truth or lose their language. They speak an old dirge mother, Funeral fathers who remind the living, don't forget what it was really like. For in another year we will mourn you, whose fossil courage fills the limestone cemeteries, brave, ignorant, amazed, dead in the vast deserts, dead on the nameless hills. 
So that's tough. But it's also something that we're asked to contemplate as a society. Um, And it's actually kind of crazy because 5% of the amount of money that's spent on weapons in the U.S., and we spend more than all the next 10 countries put together, um, but globally, would feed every hungry child, would feed every hungry person on the planet. So as a species, there's something a little bit missing. What seeds will we plant? You know, if we inherit this earth from our ancestors and our gener- and our benefactors and the generations before and their sacrifice in all these ways, what seeds will we plant? This weekend I had the memorial for my mom who died about six weeks ago. My brothers and family members, everybody came. And she died at 91 very peacefully and she was quite ready. So it was as it goes, very natural and surrounded by a lot of love. And she was a very gracious person. So it was, she was gracious to the end. And we told all kinds of stories about her. She was a quite non-judgmental person. It was really all my friends would come over and hang out and talk to my mother and tell her the things they couldn't tell their parents. You know, <laughs> She would happily... Um, listen to them and give them counsel in a very non-judgmental way. Um, But I remember her telling the story that when her parents got married in 1919, her father had been in the First World War in France, in a tank corps, I think, something like that. Um, At her parents' wedding, everyone stood up and sang the Star Spangled Banner because they were a generation of immigrants or their parents or who'd come over in the 1890s or early 1900s from Russia and Poland and Ukraine and Turkey in my family history, um, fleeing pogroms and anti-Semitism and racism and all the things that they had suffered. Um, and the Star Spangled Banner, it's like, here we are, we're finally in a place that we're free. But then you have the Langston Hughes poem where he writes, let America be America again, the America she never was. You know, and there's Abraham Lincoln again saying, you know, the proposition that all men are created equal. And then we have to expand that phrase a little bit, right? Let America be America again, the America she never was. So war is part of this mystery of human incarnation. Who are we as human beings, who are you? Nobody knows the age of the human race, but everybody knows it's old enough to know better. (laughs) One part of our humanity, and this really connects with the meditation that we've been doing tonight, is the reptilian brain. I'm sure you've noticed how it operates. My friend Wes Nisker, who teaches here, says the neocortex, the modern, highly developed brain, is primarily the organ that makes excuses for your reptilian brain's activities, right? (laughs) Primitive, survival, fearful, instincts, tribal. And underneath, in the Buddhist psychology, it operates from greed and fear and hatred and ignorance and delusion. Now, you're not going to rid yourself of the primitive brain. It's part of your human incarnation. So it's important to see it clearly and understand it and hold it with compassion. But what the Buddha teaches is that it's possible to shift your identity, your mode of operation. You could even maybe have the primitive brain move from the driver's seat to the passenger seat in your particular journey. And instead, as we did in the sitting practice, become the witness to these elements of fear and confusion and hatred and reactivity with loving awareness. And the invitation from the Buddha begins, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, the awakened ones, remember who you really are and learn to train yourselves to live with dignity and respect and a peace of heart that is possible for you 
if it weren't possible for you, said the Buddha, I wouldn't teach you to do this, but just because it is possible, I offer you these trainings of compassion and mindfulness and loving awareness. Devote yourself to them, practice them, and learn to embody dignity and graciousness even in the face of conflict and difficulty. And you will transform your life and the life of all that you touch. So that word devote, I'm trying to weave things together, you'll hear tonight, um, is also a little bit related to the beautiful chanting that we heard from the Gandan brothers, the monks, masters, in Tibet, in Burma, where I was a couple months ago, in Thailand, various Buddhist countries, there's this field of devotion. The temples are built, every village has its temples and monks and nuns. Um, and the society, or much of the society, the Buddhist society anyway, enacts these collective rituals of devotion and love and joy and brings food and sings and dances and chants um, and uh, that quality of devotion. I mean, it's kind of amazing to go into a remote part of Burma or Thailand and see people um, who are still living very much as they had for many, many centuries, not so modernized in the most remote parts yet. And the center of their life really is Dharma practice. And the center of their life is the temple, and along with their farming and their taking care of their family, and their love of the possibility of, of Dharma, of liberation, of compassion, and so forth. So that there are different things that we could devote ourselves to. You could devote yourself to money. Money's fine. I think money's a great thing. Um, but I'm not sure it's a great devotion. You know what I mean? It's good to have, to use. It's fine and to make it and use it for beautiful things. You know, you could devote yourself to a lot of things. Um, their chant and the chant that you would hear in the morning in the temples is an invitation to devote yourself to awakening, to devote yourself to freedom of heart, to devote yourself to compassion. And the question when you come into the temple, yes, you learn the practices of how to quiet the mind and open the heart, the trainings of loving kindness or compassion or forgiveness and the trainings of the steadiness of mindfulness. The question underneath is, to what will you devote yourself and your life? To what have you devoted yourself? Where do you place your devotion? In World War II, there's a story of a minister in Norway who was rounded up by the Nazi Gestapo because he was known to have been involved in getting Jews, gays, and lesbians, gypsies, all kinds of people at risk out of Germany. Um, and saving their lives. And he was brought into and captured, brought into an interrogation cell. You know, the single light bulb, you've all seen it in the movies, and the military interrogator there, the table, and then him sitting on the other side. And to make the interrogation work, the officer pulled his German Luger, his handgun, out and placed it on the table. This is serious business at which point the minister reached in his bag and pulled out a Bible and thumped it and put it next to the gun. And the officer said, why did you do that? And he said, well, you've placed your weapon on the table and I've placed mine. To what do you devote yourself? Where is your refuge? Where is the place that you've turned your heart in some way to, be, to give your life dignity and nobility and meaning. A few years ago, I was the moderator at a conference that we organized in New York City for the Dalai Lama. And um, 
people coming out of prison projects in America. We have this huge problem, worse than problem, like the gulag, this, you know, two and a half million people in these racist poverty prisons primarily. Um, crazy how many people we have locked in cells. So these are people from all around the country that we've gathered who had been done long years of hard time, but had found through the many, many prison dharma programs, meditation practices and trainings that gave them a sense of inner freedom even in their prison cell. And we asked the prison projects to send, you know, an example, people who represented them for the Dalai Lama to meet. And he was kind of shocked to hear about our prison. He thought we were a more civilized nation. Because they take him to nice hotels and stuff like that, right? Seriously, they don't show him the prisons. And they don't show him the homeless. A friend of mine arranged for him to go down to a place near the Glide and feed homeless people. The last trip before this that he came to San Francisco, it was the best part of his trip for him. Because he doesn't get to do this. So there we are in this room, and it's actually, forget which hotel it was. Um, but it was... Uh, a very elegant hotel on the Upper East Side in New York. Um, and uh, we met in a conference room and these people who, many of them were just recently out of prison, were like looking around, this is not where I'm used to being with the Dalai Lama. And um, the Dalai Lama brought with him two um, young nuns who I think were part of the Dropchi 14. These were nuns who were imprisoned in uh, Lhasa when they were teenagers for standing up and chanting the Tibetan chants and carrying pictures of the Dalai Lama. And so they were imprisoned and tortured. And they sat in the circle and the men and women who, who were coming from these prison projects described their experience and how their meditation had helped them learn forgiveness and free themselves and so forth but also what the struggle had been and how tough the prisons are and things like that. And then Dalai Lama turned to these two young nuns and said, would you please tell a little of your story? And they described how they were, you know, 16 years old and thrown in prison and the kinds of torture, which are sort of unimaginable cattle prods and just, I won't, I won't give more images, but you know, terrible torture. Um, and uh, they said they kept, reciting their prayers anyway. And then the Dalai Lama said, were you afraid when you were there? Because they'd been in prison for six, seven, eight years and they were released and then they walked over the mountains to get out. And they said, oh yes, we were terribly afraid. And he said, what made you afraid? And they said, we were afraid that we would begin to hate our captors. That was our biggest fear. So what did you do, he said, and these two young women said, well, we spent our time praying for them. They were making the karma that would make so much suffering for them. We looked at them, and our time there was to pray for the enemy, was to pray for our captors. And, you know, here's this guy who'd been in Oklahoma for 25 years doing hard time, tattooed, and really he'd been, he'd been in the prison system since he was a young man and pretty tough. And he looked at them and his eyes got water. He said, I seem brave. I, you know, I never seen anything like you girls. And it was just something else. To what do you devote yourself? And it really shows when things get difficult in our life, which is why we do meditation practice and why it's called practice rather than perfect or something like that. So you train yourself. So the chants that you heard are chants of compassion, chants of courage, chants of invitation of awakening, of devotion, chants of gratitude, chants to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that we might follow in their footsteps or be inspired by them, chants of vows, of non-harming. These are the kind of chants that we did when I also lived in the monastery. Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanahiko Pachatang Veditapu Vinyuhiti. The gates of the Dharma are open to all 
of good hearts, immediate, visible to the wise, open-handed, offering relief from suffering and bringing liberation and joy, um, timeless to be found here exactly where you are. Come and join us. That was one of our morning chants. And the chants and the songs that you hear, a thousand, two thousand, two thousand five hundred years old, are the way that the vows and prayers are carried from generation to generation. So I told last week, I didn't realize these um, wonderful monks from um, Gandan would be here this Monday when I told this story, so I'm going to tell it again anyway, about 15 or 20 years ago, a friend of mine arranged for the Drepung monks to go into San Quentin prison to sing together with the San Quentin Gospel Choir. And the San Quentin Gospel Choir is really beautiful also. And we've had a number of them come and sing here at one point. Um, those were guys that were out, that were formally in. That were in the, they wouldn't let the choir that's in there come to Spirit Rock. Um, although I did tell the warden there that I was the warden at Spirit Rock. She said, I didn't know things were so tough out there at Spirit Rock. But anyway... Um, so the idea in this big chapel there was the San Quentin Gospel Choir, which is filled with guys who were saved by Jesus, basically who got faith and devotion, um, and also have beautiful voices. Um, and they sing these gospel songs um, as a way of expressing the transformation that happened in them in their spiritual life through, through their salvation with Jesus. Um, and their songs have so much heart to them because they've suffered so much and something comes through that big heart of suffering. Well, when my friend brought the Drepung monks there and they got up there with the San Quentin Gospel Choir, she realized that um, maybe she'd made a mistake because, at least in her mind, and maybe partly true, these guys in the San Quentin Gospel Choir we're looking at a bunch of heathens, non-Christians, right, wearing skirts, you know. And it was a little bit of a cultural disjunct, if you will. And she thought, oh, okay, how are we going to make this work? But she's also wise. So she said, I want to introduce these monks to you. She said, many of them have been in prison. And they were in prison for a lot of reasons that were not due to what they had done, but because of the system around them. They were tortured in prison. They were unable to be with their families, to live their lives, and so forth. And after some years in prison, they either managed to get out or to escape in some way, but they couldn't stay because their homes were unsafe. And so they had to walk on foot over the highest mountains in the world to come to some freedom. They now live in these monasteries. It was the Drepung Monastery. Um, and they can't go home. They can't go back to their families and to where they were born. And what has kept them going through prison and torture and walking over the Himalayas and the fact that they can't go home is their songs and their prayers and their devotions. And they would like to sing for you now. And so the Drepung monks, oh, you heard them, right? <laughs> sang, this is the Gandan monks, and then, you know, the San Quentin Gospel Choir sang, and then they just embraced each other. They knew they were brothers. So what they carry in their prayers and songs um, is a possibility, is a human possibility that's possible for you and me and actually for, for humanity as a whole. Because at this point in human history. The globe in some ways is more connected in an insanely more connected way than has ever been so. Um, but as I've said over and over again, no amount of internet and modern technology and nanotechnology and biotechnology and all these things is going to stop warfare and continuing racism and continuing environmental destruction. Those outer developments 
have to be matched by transformation of human consciousness. Otherwise, all the new scientific things just get used in the same old way. And we see that, don't we? So we as humanity have to find a better game than war to solve our conflicts and to build, you know, a, a, a world that is truly interdependent. O nobly born, says the Buddha, wage peace rather than war. And it's not for the faint-hearted. It turns out that to, if you choose, if you devote yourself to live a peaceful life, it's hard work. How's that? Maybe people don't tell you that. I mean, you know it when you hear it. You hear me say that and you go, yeah, of course the dude's right. You know, it is hard work, actually, especially when it's personal, which it very often is, right? You know how your heart gets riled up by things and upset in different ways, you know, and then that becomes the place, if you want to live with a peaceful heart, the place to wage peace is in your own heart. Because we can either live in the body of fear and shame and judgment and anger and resentment and lack of forgiveness and those primitive parts of the brain, or there's an alternative. He abused me. He slandered me. He threw me down. He beat me and robbed me. Perpetuate these thoughts, says the Buddha, and you live in hatred and suffering. He abused me. He slandered me. He threw me down and robbed me. Abandon these thoughts and live in love. Hatred never ends by hatred but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. From the verses of the Dhammapada. But you start in the smallest way. You sit here and you see the judging mind. You see your own shame or guilt or judgment or lack of forgiveness for yourself. And you also, as when Ajahn Chah said, stop the war, he meant also stop the war on yourself. Bring the quality of respect and dignity and love to what you experience as you sit. To the frightened mind and the ambitious mind and the lazy mind and the, you know, the mind that's confused and all those minds that you say, oh, I don't like those, that you judge. Instead, you meet them with a bow and say, oh, yes, you too, I remember you. Thank you. Thank you for your opinion. Right? You've heard this. And in some ways, it's this kind of very intimate practice. I was interviewing a wonderful old um, Catholic nun who'd been in a spiritual community for a long time. And she was telling, recounting her history. She said, in the second community I lived, there were only a dozen of us nuns. I liked all but two of them. One was lazy and the other was self-absorbed. After about a year there, I was in the kitchen complaining to another nun about them who said, you know, these are actually really not such bad people. What is it that gets to you? And I said, well, one is lazy and the other is just too full of herself and self-absorbed. And she replied, well, you ought to be more lazy and take better care of yourself too. <laughs> you know how it works, don't you? How easy it is to project on another person. And then, here is Gandhi, who says, Let our first act every morning be this resolve. I shall not fear anyone on earth. I shall not bear ill will toward anyone. I shall not submit to injustice from anyone. I shall conquer hatred by love and untruth by truth. And in resisting untruth, I shall put up with all suffering and bring joy and freedom to all. Something like that little prayer, right? So in that circle with the ex-prisoners and the Dalai Lama, there was a woman who spoke who'd spent 16 years in prison in Arkansas. She was put in as an accessory for murder because she was in a car where some 
guys she was with went in and robbed a store and shot people and somebody was killed. Um, and she was somehow part of it. And she said, you get hard in there. People mistreat you in all kinds of ways. And so you shut down and you shut your heart and you have to protect yourself. She said, so there I was in my cell and once in a while they'll throw short timers in. And um, so this young woman gets thrown into my cell and I don't you know, want to deal with the short timers. I got my own re rhythm and regimen. So I say, there's your cot, there's your part of the cell, leave me alone, right? Very cold and she's there for like four months or five months or something like that. And then I started to see that every morning when she woke up, she would go over to the side of the cell and start to vomit and throw up. And the next day she started to throw up again and again. And all of a sudden it dawned on me a week or two later, oh my God, she's pregnant. And I realized not only was she in the cell, this young woman, but she was also carrying a baby. So I began to talk to her find out her story and the terrible things that had happened to her. Most of the women in prison, by the way, unlike this story, 90-some percent of, especially the women in the, in the maximum things, are women who've been abused in one way or another, some serious way before they did anything. Anyway, I began to talk to her and hear her story um, and then bring her extra food for her and her baby. And then I let the other women on the cell block know and pretty soon they kind of adopted her and food would be sent down and you know whatever people had they would take care of her and she got out and she gave birth a couple months after she got out and we got a message back with the name of her baby and she said the whole block of women just started cheering it was like they had given birth to someone as well she said, and that changed me. She said, that's when I realized that I couldn't live with a Waldorf heart anymore. That I actually, no matter what I'd done or no matter how people were treating me now, um, that I couldn't live that way. It wasn't what I wanted to devote my life to anymore. There are two great forces that shape the world. The force of violence and those who are not afraid to kill. And the force of love and those who are not afraid to love, no matter what, no matter its consequences. Um, and it's really that second force that it's time for us to learn. Love is the reality of our interconnectedness. It is who we really are, O oh nobly born. And it is possible, said the Buddha and in Martin Luther King in Gandhi's words, to meet physical force with soul force, to meet this world with the fierceness and the spirit of love, to see conflict and not turn away from it. The instructions from the Buddha, anything, are to lean into the wind. If there's conflict, to turn your attention with mindfulness and dignity and compassion for the benefit of all, for the protection of all, including yourself. You have to protect yourself as well with tolerance. And to use the trainings of mindfulness and loving awareness to bring reconciliation, to listen, to create a field of understanding, to use the one of the phrases in these trainings to cover mud with straw so you can walk out of the mud to some drier ground. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. So we don't have to pass on the seeds of bitterness. Or we can take responsibility as a citizen, responsibility of a citizen of your own heart, how you, do, how you live, how you live in your family and community, 
and as a citizen of a warlike nation, which we are, I'm sorry, I think there's only been one year since World War II where we haven't sent troops somewhere around the world. How's that? Kind of makes you want to say, throw the bums out, right? Except it turns out that it's us, that we actually need a change of consciousness collectively. And their songs and their chants, you know, and maybe your best intentions and your best prayers are to devote yourself to make something beautiful in this world. Because you'll find conflict, it will find you. You know it will. Um, and difficulty in betrayal. Anybody in this room not been betrayed? If you raise your hand, all I could say is it's coming. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's part of the game. Human incarnation has the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, and you have gain and loss and pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow and trust and broken trust. It's human relations. It's how it works, right? And there is a dignity, there's a graciousness, there's a freedom of spirit that is your birthright. And to come and meditate isn't then some grim duty, and it's not a self-improvement project, you know, like going to the gym and dieting and therapy and stuff, even with all the good di dieting er um, teas and so forth that are offered. It's reclaiming your dignity and your nobility and your gracious heart, which you are born with, and knowing that you can live from this. So I'd like to ask if you would do maybe 10 minutes of chanting and then some questions. And for you, um, let yourself sit and listen and kind of let yourself be washed over by the chants. Um, you can close your eyes if you wish and imagine in some way that you're sitting in... Tibet, which is how it would be sounding, um, washed over by the sounds of the words and the chants of devotion, of rem remembrance of your human possibility. And then we'll take a, a little bit of time to, if you have questions that you want to ask them, and we'll end as we do at 9.15. So sit comfortably and please. Oh,今年做到这些的难得做些嘛，没人生。大概马路的那那些那路那矮的那位家姐，我咱不这边马路的，家伙那些野姐，我总多先给对面路上的嘛，家伙光拉拉的，家子路的姐的那对面，咱
Yes, take the microphone, please. Okay, we want to thank you for your support, and we want to offering one Tibetan traditional we call kata. Okay, this is the white scarf. They have eight symbol of the good luck. This one, eight symbol of the good luck, and uh, white is symbol of the peace. Or your mind is clear. Long is long life. We are going to offer Teacher Jack from the Aula Kishilas. Thank you. so much. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, thank you. And Beth, please, she's a lot of art. Oh. This is the memory of the monastery. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. We can place these on the altar. Look at that. That's the cross Vajra. It looks like 
uh, our relations permanent. Yeah. <laughs> Symbol of the permanent. Gorgeous. She's uh, supporting, coordinating some plays, and thank you. I'm going to explain you a little bit of the history of the monastery. It's, I think, much better. Sure. Okay. And our monastery is the Ganden Shadze Monastery in the South. In, uh, we, now we are in the South India, I think somebody know, in the Karnataka state. Okay. Karnataka state is the uh, uh, Tibetan biggest settlements. Belakopi, Mungod, Hunsur, Kolegao, and the all the three biggest monasteries before Master explained you, Gandhi, Drebu, and Sarah, restoration in the South India. And the, we are in the South India. We have 1,400 monks. We live together, meditation together, study together, practice together. Also, we, government of India give us the, some fields. We work in the fields, summertime, uh, corn and uh, rice. And also we cook, monks, turn by turn. And uh, this is the uh, short history of monastery. We wake up 5.30, almost 5, 5.30, sometime we have the special ceremony, 3.30 in the morning, most of 5.30 to 6 between, all the monks go to the, this kind of big temple. They do the prayer every morning, and uh, young monks offering breakfast, black tea with milk, butter and salt. <laughs> and uh, when American or European people come to monastery, what is this? And we say, this is tea. This is look like soup. <laughs> but because you know, Tibet love to drink a lot of uh, black tea. Okay, because uh, uh, this, is, this looks like a little bit coffee, very strong. But India, black tea is a little bit soft. And butter and salt and bread monks make. Also, lunch we make break, and dinner we have rice and veg and everything. Then we have uh, until 11 o'clock, we had debate class. This is and our daily life in the monastery. And many monks, they can uh, escape from Tibet to India without permission the communist government to learn uh, Buddhist philosophy, Tibetan culture. Otherwise, we are here doing the some tour and the foundation of the Sagres team sponsored the, our monastery to make the tour to a little bit fundraise in your support to help our uh, monks, okay? Otherwise, we are here. We are in the, uh, fund, uh, you can uh, see the web page, foundation and Sagres team. They have the Tibetan monks tour and all the information. If you like to join some meditations, house blessings, anything, you can look there, okay? Thank you very much. Thank you, Master. Thank you. Thank you. So we have time for a couple of questions before we end, if there are. So, yes. Oh, wait, we've, got a, we've got a handheld mic, which is good. Is there a special uh, significance to the deeper tones, to the... Mm. Uh, to the to the uh, chanting uh, where uh, the one beautiful voice is so low. So did you hear a question? Is there some special meaning when you do the very deep or multivocal chanting? Or oh, is that spe what does that mean, or why is that done? Pass him the microphone. Yes. Maybe also you take. Yandu 
Okay, uh, there's the some chantings we use like yeah you know some chanting just reading looks like reading some chanting we have the how do you say yeah like this same this is we are praying and offering for the our Buddha and everything who like and they can more bless connections example we have the nice song of the uh, how do you say sinkings we like more and no good sound don't like same things otherwise especially when you the, we use uh, some special voice that time we use uh, most of the sacred words mantras sometimes sacred words we cannot explaining how do you say uh, we cannot read directly used through the this this is the difference i hope you understand i'm sorry thank you My English. thank you <laughs> take one more I feel like Bob Barker here. <laughs> I'm curious about the debates that you do, if you can say something about that. Does one person take a point of view and the other opposes it? Okay. <laughs> debate. Yeah, no, debate. Okay, uh, he doesn't need a mic. He's used to debating. <laughs> That's right. I need to show the action. Uh. <laughs> How to do the we debate? Okay, debate. We are doing some monks sit like this, and one monk stand up. They ask question. Okay, and this is debate, study, practice, meditation all together. Include become exercise. We don't need to go to gym. <laughs> when we do the debate, take good motivation first. Motivation. Then we say, D is mantra of Buddha wisdom, Manchushri. Okay. Then we do like this. Like this is meaning of hell being. Animal beings will be reborn in the upper level, like human beings. This is minimal. We need to motivate. Then we ask questions. What do we study? The philosophy things. Ask the questions. What is meaning of the human beings? Human being meaning of, like, looks like example. Who have the understanding and the talking. Okay. Who, somebody know the understanding and talking and this meaning of the human being. Then dog is human being. Something, a parrot is human being. Parrots can talk. They understand. Like this, debate and learning, learning, okay? When His Holiness Dalai Lama visiting in the monastery sometime, we have especially debate, examining, offering from him, and many Indian security and surprise, things like And they ask him what they are doing, and we explain many things they don't understand, and we easy to ask. Which one's the first, egg and chicken? <laughs> and they said, egg, egg, where they come from? Egg come from chicken. Oh, chicken where come from? Chicken from egg, egg come from chicken. <laughs> this is just example. <laughs> but our debate most of for the compassion, how do we get the, our mind for the compassion, emptiness, with the chica, to practice to get the enlightenment. This is we are doing debate like this. And very, uh, how do you say, story, when we lost our country in 1959, and 10 years, all the uh, monasteries, monks, Indian government keep in the eastern part of the India, in the Bursa, near to the uh, Sikkim and the, here, Assam. Assam. And uh, that time, monks are very poor, very typical, but they are still studying and doing debate. And when they do debate, oh, I have question. I, something looks like fighting. Not fighting, but I want to ask question. I am just pushing. And one day, this the director of the uh, police who taking care, and he saw, and he's very afraid. And he called the leader of the, this dependent community. Please come quickly. And he said, what happened? Your monks are fighting. <laughs> and he's very worried. Leader. And leader coming, running. and. Yeah, look, your mom's fighting. No, no, this is not fighting. This is being prepared. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Thank you. So that's a perfect story to end for Memorial Day. Let us change uh, change warfare into debate. Yes, we like this. Um, this Memorial Day, remembering that beautiful passage from Thich Nhat Hanh where he said, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained peaceful and calm, it was enough. They showed the way for everyone to survive. So in honor of Memorial Day, and in honor of your greatest dignity and nobility, let yourself become a citizen of love, a citizen of peace in this world, in your citizenship, in your family, in your community, that you carry the seeds of what's possible for humanity um, as a whole, um, and enter the world then with blessings. And we thank you for your blessing. It was really great to have him do that prayer before he put it around. It's like birthday. It's really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Happy birthday. Um, blessings. Thank you. And the donations you give support them. So um, thank you for that. Be generous and um, have a beautiful week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.